on each other, that wisdom and compassion are dependent on each other. And so really they're of equal, of equal status in, I guess the metaphor is the bird of the Dharma flies with two wings. So I'm not sure about bird, but I get the, I get the idea. I've, I've started um, in, in recently, I've started uh, thinking of uh, the Dharma in terms more of uh, neuroscience and evolutionary biology than in terms of the rounds of samsara and multiple lifetimes and karmic whatever. <clears throat> I'm not, I'm, I'm not as, uh, they're both, both metaphors. I think the, the metaphors that were present at the Buddhist time were clear for him and for the people he was talking to. But for us, I think, um, I feel more comfortable with, with this, and I'll try to, to articulate the Buddha's teaching about wisdom and compassion in terms, of, in terms of how we show up as organisms on this planet. Um, the Buddha said, and, I, and I, I do want to talk more about the mechanics of wisdom and compassion and how they address the Buddha's primary task, his primary concern, which was suffering and the end of suffering. I mean, often we'll talk about wisdom and compassion, say compassion's good, wisdom's good, how wonderful it is, and we talk about how wonderful. But I, I want to get a little bit at the, at the mechanics of how <coughs> wisdom and compassion uh, work towards the uh, ending of, of, of suffering. The Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Actually, the word he used um, in Pali was uh, his, the language that his uh, teachings are recorded in was dukkha. And dukkha has a meaning that's much broader just than suffering. It, it refers to um, all of the stuff that we, all of the ways in which we resist the way things are. Um, it's the stuff that we add into the mix, the way we make things worse. So, so for example, um, one of my friends, Friday afternoon, late in the day, boss stops by her little cubicle and says, Monday morning, we've got to talk. What do you think her weekend was like? <laughs> Dukkha. And it didn't have to do with the fact that the weekend turned out to be beautiful. And friends were around, but she was not up for it because in her mind. So it's the stuff we add in. Traffic jams. Anybody ever get upset about a traffic jam? Usually when you're in a hurry. Not so much if you got all day and you know it's going to be crowded, you give yourself plenty of time, you're in the car and you're having fun, you're visiting with you, what's the traffic jam? Nothing. But if you're in a hurry, dukkha. It's not the traffic jam, it's what we add into it. You know, all the little hypochondriacal <laughs> tendencies, you know, is this pain? Is I don't know, so what am I, you know, dukkha. You know. I remember going to, I had a, um, I went to the Apple store to get my computer fixed. Well, my computer was fixed, and I wanted to get it back. You know how bad it is to not have your computer for a couple of days? I actually think, just in terms of evolution, we are, we are now really homo cyber sapiens. I mean, <laughs> it's not directly implanted, but boy, oh boy. I mean, we're, and we're evolving geeks and nerds. <laughs> you know, for, for those of us who think evolution has taken a time out. Um, but I went to the Apple store and I wanted my computer. <clears throat> they called me, said it was ready. I walked in the door, I saw the desk at the back. I was gonna, all I wanted to do is go back there and say, you, and the guy with the little iPad says, can I help you? I said, oh, I'm getting my computer at the, he said, okay, we'll go wait in that line over there. Well, I went and waited in the line. There were two or three people on the line, and I got to the front of the line, and the, the guy gets my name, and he says, oh, yeah, go at that line over there. 
Well, you know, um, I uh, was fuming as I went to the second line, and I was, I was just really irritated and thinking, I just don't want to do this, I'm just going to go home. And then I thought, oh dear, then I have to do this all over again. <laughs> and at that moment, I just, I was going to be in the line, and the, the dukkha stopped. The, you know, I stopped making it worse because I was going to be there anyway. And it, was, it turned out to be a treat because I watched some lady buy a computer with $20 bills. <laughs> and I, if I'd been fuming, I would have been thinking about it. So I would have missed, missed that show. One of, the, one of, the, uh, one of the, the correlates of dukkha that I found, um, sometimes it's, it's hard to know when we're, when we're suffering or dissatisfied, because <clears throat> was it Richard Farina who had a book, Been Down So Long It Looks Like Up to Me? You know? So sometimes it's hard to keep track. Um, but I think that if you find yourself complaining, dukkha whether it's justified or not. <coughs> Basically, the world is the way it is. Things are as they are, and our complaint about them is it comes from us. It's what we add to the mix. The complaint doesn't make things better. It might focus our attention on something that needs to be done. So the Buddha articulated his insight into suffering and the end of suffering, or complaining, and the end of complaining. I guess in this sense, the, the, the Buddha's ultimate task would be to learn how to live a complaint-free life. So we can find complaints and figure out how to... So the Buddha articulated his, 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 his insight, his deepest insight into the nature of, of human dissatisfaction and suffering. In terms of the Four Noble Truths, what are called the Four, what are known as the Four Noble Truths. The first, the first of these truths is, well, in, in what's known as the First Sermon, is the truth, the Noble Truth of Suffering. The text reads like this, the, the Noble Truth of Suffering, birth, aging, Sickness, death, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, and losing what you cherish. That's how it's, how it's laid out. These are, these, these, this comes with life. Anybody missed any of those? <laughs> you know, sometimes it seems like, I mean, not getting what you want, that could be, I mean, if we actually got President Trump, <laughs> it would be a background not wanting, it would be background dukkha for, for some time. Hmm? Background? Background. <laughs> Well, no matter where you put your, I mean, so not getting what you want, getting what you don't want can become an ambient condition. And actually, you know, these are, these are elements that are worthy of complaint. None of these, you know, aging, oh my gosh, sickness, yeah. Nobody's happy with the prospect of death, or even with dying, probably. Um, pain? No. But these things in themselves are just what they are. Pain is just pain. What makes it unsatisfactory? What makes it... What, where's the additional... Where do we add on? The Buddha said, the, the second of the truths, the cause of suffering, the cause of our dissatisfaction, the cause of our complaints. And he labeled this, uh, he, he described the origin of our dissatisfaction in p 
purely subjective terms, purely phenomenological terms. And he used the word tanha, which, is, which translates most directly as thirst. We talk about it as sometimes craving or sometimes just desire. Talking about internal states is kind of hard. It's not easy, you know. What does a, what does a word like love mean? I love you. Um, cars love shell. Tell me what. <laughs> my car, <laughs> I love my car. I love you. Uh, my car loves its gasoline. What does the word love mean? You know, when we use a word, it's hard, it's hard to know. But tanha is... Um, he described it as an underlying tendency. And it shows up in three different ways. I'll describe them, and then I'll, I'll describe them in terms uh, that I understand them in terms of, of uh, biology and neuroscience. So he said the first is kamatanha. Kama is a word for sensual pleasure, for pleasant experience. We want our experience to be pleasant. Just sort of bottom line. It, you know, we don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, boy, that restaurant was lousy last night. Let's do it again. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't navigate in terms of increasing unpleasantness for ourselves. It's just the way we are. We want our experience to be pleasant. Bawatanha, which is usually translated as the desire to to be, to become, to be something, becoming. And the other, the third is vivavatana, which is the opposite, which is to make it stop. And it's not articulated a whole lot more than that. Now I understand these in terms of how we are as organisms. You know, over the hundreds of thousands of years, well, even more if you start from the beginning, from life, the survival impulse, you call it an instinct, is an underlying tendency. We may not be, it may not be triggered while we're sitting on the beach at Waikiki, sipping a Mai Tai and enjoying the tropical breeze, but you know, it can show up. We are built to want to survive, to protect ourselves and survive. We want to become something. We want to be in the future. And, and it's, it's really such a, profound, uh, uh, such a profound drive um, you know, to survive and reproduce that we... It, we we're going to live forever or die trying, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we, it's, we, it's such a powerful drive that when we can't, um, can't figure out how to do it, we imagine um, multiple lifetimes or some afterlife, a legacy, it's a very powerful drive. And we put this incredibly powerful computer that we've got in our head, this data processing device, in the service of survival. And, you know, that brain lives inside a skull, and all the input is we, colors and shapes, right? Sounds tactile sensations, and then smell and taste. And then that's all the data that we, you know, the brain gets, and it constructs this whole world that we live in with its, its uh, <laughs> I was going to say with its trumps and its, you know, with everything, the, the, with the migrants, with the, with the suffering in the world, with the joys, with just the map of how to get home, I mean, all of that is in our neurology, in this fathom-long body, as the Buddha said. And you know, we are designed to navigate in terms of pleasantness. Unpleasantness is not 
I mean, it's a sign for the organism that we need to watch out. Pain, take care of the pain. You know? um, we, we, we navigate towards pleasant because generally pleasant is in uh, the service of safety and uh, security. It's what we want. We're built to want that. Ancestors who were more who were more like it, it applies. I did a I did a wedding uh, ceremony the other day, and I think for the first time I I, I brought in neuroscience, evolution. <laughs> Humans. Well, this was a couple that was very informal, beautiful. They, you know, but still we're getting married because. Our, you know, humans are dependent longer than any other creature. And so those, our ancestors who were committed to, to uh, supporting and taking care of and nurturing would be more likely to pass on their genes. So we've got them. So even when we think, it's, it's built into the fabric of our, and of course, when there's unpleasantness, vibhavatanha, make it go away. I think it's built into our, into our organism. And in a way, this built-in disposition, this proclivity, this tendency, is in opposition to the elements in that first truth. It's set in opposition to, to, the, to what we find in life. Birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, distress. Boy, we don't want any of that. Not getting what we want. We put together a strategy to help ourselves survive, become more secure, safe, comfortable. We have our ideas about how to do it, how things should be. And it encounters the realities of not getting what you want and losing what you cherish. And what happens? Dukkha, complaint. Hey, I know everything's impermanent, but that was my good cup. (laughs) (laughs) All things subject to arising are subject to passing. Oh, no. (laughs) I like that sweater. So dukkha, complaints, the origin of complaints are in our desire for things to be different than they are. <clears throat> one, of my, one of my friends, John Peacock, says he defines delusion as the firm commitment to the way things aren't. <laughs> we want the security, safety, live forever or die trying so badly. We strive for it. We work at it. We solve one problem. Those ancestors who, who took on the next one instead of taking a break, more likely to be successful. We've got those, you know, solving one, attaining one object of desire, never enough. It's one after another after another. That's the way we're built. So suffering is a composite, dukkha is a composite uh, emergent phenomenon. It's dependent on all those elements in that first truth, unpleasant. The second truth, the way we are. When unpleasantness meets the way we are, dukkha, meets our, our expectation. You know, one of the one of uh, uh, one of the things neuroscience knows is that we strive repeatedly to get what is hard to get. We don't have to strive for oxygen unless we're underwater. We don't have to make an issue, but we strive <coughs> continually to get what's difficult to get because that's the only way we're going to get it. What's difficult to get is satisfaction. What's difficult to get, I mean, what would be satisfying would be no pain, no suffering. 
always getting what we want. We try to make things, we try to make over that first truth. The Buddha said, I teach a Dharma that does not contend with anyone, that does not contend with the world. And he said in the third truth that the cessation of dukkha is the cessation of tanha, the cessation of, oh my gosh, those built-in dispositions that we come with. How do you, how do you, you know, in some ways, you know, if we perceive a threat, the amygdala is going to fire before we even know. We don't have a chance to step in. In fact, you know, neurological research shows that we, we can measure that how long it is between the time we make a decision and the time we become aware that that decision has been made. It's about 200 milliseconds, a fifth of a second. You know, when you sit and close your eyes to meditate, what happens? Thoughts show up. Anybody notice that? It's not just me, right? <laughs> you know, who's doing that thinking? They're just, you know, the brain is doing it. And we become aware of it, at, you know, after the, after the neurons have fired. So the cessation of tanha. Because if you remove either the impulses of tanha or the unpleasantness, you, you remove the conditions for dukkha. So compassion is the intention to attenuate suffering, to make dukkha evaporate. And the traditional way of doing that, the way people usually do that, is to address the elements of the first truth. If somebody's hungry, you feed them. If somebody is lonely, you comfort them, you be present with them. If somebody is hurting, you help with the pain. But you can also address the tanha side, the side of the way we are, the way we're built. There are a couple of ways, there are a couple of ways of doing that. The Buddha described, in the fourth truth, he described the Eightfold Path, which is the, um, it's described as the path to the end of suffering, or the path of, the path of living without suffering. And, You know, sometimes it's described, I've heard it described as the path to nirvana is not the same as nirvana. I'm not sure, you know, like the path to the Grand Canyon is not the same as the Grand Canyon. That's one metaphor. But the other, the other metaphor that I feel more comfortable with is that the path, the Eightfold Path, is the path of awakening. It's the path of an awakened person. And it's not that if you follow the Eightfold Path you get to be awakened. It's that at the point when you're awake and you get to live the Eightfold Path, you get to live right uh, speech, right action, right livelihood. That's the fruit, to live a life without dukkha, to live a complaint-free life, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And the other elements of the path, beginning with uh, right view, right understanding. Interestingly, the word sama, uh, which is the word that we translate as right, samaditi, right view, samasati, right mindfulness. Um, there's no, there's no place in the in the early texts that explicate the word sama. So it's translated as right, and then some people don't like right because it suggests that it's the opposite of wrong, and then some people think, well, maybe we could up up here. We it's on the the wheel at the uh, opening entrance to the retreat center, it's uh, wise intention, wise effort, sometimes skillful. 
But really, to, if you don't need to do it as one word, you know, sama, all the elements of the Eightfold Path exist as part of the path to the extent that they um, lead to the cessation of suffering, to the cessation of, ta of tanha. We've got right understanding and right intention, right speech, action, livelihood. That really means all the time. You know, in the in the, in the Metta Sutta, the, the line, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, that sort of means all the time. It's just a poetic way of saying, because otherwise, you know, if you get too fundamentalist, you go, well, what if I'm bending over? <laughs> you know, what if I'm leaning against a wall? Do I have to do it then? You know, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Sometimes it's hard. Right action is rolling your eyes, right action, or right speech, or wrong speech, or is body language speech or action? You know, um, is Donald Trump for president? Is that speech? <laughs> Which is, I, you could also say, Donald Trump for president. You know, so there's, not, there's no border between them. It's really the way you live. It's the way of living without dukkha. And it takes effort. There's effort and mindfulness and concentration or stability. Mindfulness and, you know, the, the Eightfold Path is a one-fold path. It's not eight separate elements, although there's a tendency to say, well, what does this mean, this right concentration? We break it off and we do jhana practice and we become very exotic, capable of very exotic meditative states, but to the extent that these elements are part of the Eightfold Path, they're specifically related to the cessation of, of suffering. So the compassionate Motivation, compassionate intention arises out of wisdom, out of the wisdom of seeing how suffering works. And the, the, uh, and the Buddha's teachings were the, he didn't have, he didn't set up charities. He basically, his teaching his teachings were described as his, he was teaching out of compassion for the suffering of the world. So if we've got this Eightfold Path, it's, I think of it sometimes like the Eightfold Basketball. You know, it's an Eightfold Path, the Eightfold Basketball. It's a sphere, it's made of rubber, it's brown, got little dimples on it, filled with compressed air, weighs a couple pounds, got black stripes on it, 15 inches across or so, is that eight? You know, you can't play basketball with just the brown. No. And, it's, and the Eightfold Path is a complete path. And, and the, you know, in some ways, in, in that way it's a one-fold path, it's also a two-fold path. It's right understanding and then the rest sort of flows from, your intention flows from your understanding and your action flows from that. And your meditation uh, informs your understanding. So what is so? How how does this work? We can we can attenuate suffering by reducing the unpleasantness for ourselves or others. And then it comes to dealing with tanha, which is built in and some of it automatic and happening before we even notice. So the Buddha gave some instruction to his son. He said, if you find yourself about to engage in an action that you know is not for the benefit of yourself and others, but would be for the detriment of yourself and others, don't do it. So you could find, an, you can recognize an impulse and say, no, not going there. He says, if you find yourself in the middle of an action that is not being carried out for the benefit of oneself or others. Stop. 
you know, and some of it, some of it can can be done fairly fairly simply. So I work, I do uh, uh, a lot of a lot of work at Folsom Prison, and I occasionally get get things like like this, where this guy who uh, is a seventy year old biker, I have no idea what he's in for, but he's in solitary, and I meet with them in in what are called therapeutic modules. Think of cage. Basically, think a large phone booth, and um, because they're too, he's manacled. He's too dangerous. But over six, eight weeks of some intensive practice and study, and he was motivated. I came in to see him one day, and I said, "How you doing? What's up?" He says, "Oh," he said, "You know, I." I got into it with one of the guards this week. Oh, what a mess, he said, but it was my fault. And I thought, oh. Okay. A couple weeks later, how are you doing? He says, oh, you know, he said, I, I had a chance to mix it up with a guard again this week, but I knew where that was going. And I, I just said, no, been there, done that. You know, that's, that's we can do that. That's what the Buddha is suggesting, recognizing, recognizing that. You can actually, you can actually um, do it even, even more. So I, I have a, a, a lab that I like to walk, and she's, she's, she's really good. Walk with her, and she stays right on my left side, and, you know, and I, it's really fun. But I'm walking along, and about... This is a little while ago, about 30 yards ahead, a couple with a small dog. And my dog first starts bouncing up and down. And then she starts pulling, and then she's barking. and she, So I have to turn around and get in front of her and say, knock it off. And she, okay. But I had to actually, I had to get around and get in front of her between her and the dog and, and point at her and raise my voice, knock it off. If she, when she's first started bouncing, if I'd just gone, uh-uh, that would have done it too. Now, if you wait longer, it's, once, once you're in the middle of a, a rage, it's hard to, to pull yourself out. So the advantage of the mindfulness practice is that it helps us recognize those, those impulses as they arise in us. So we can get off that train before the, before we get swept away. And we learn to recognize them. We become sensitive to them. You know, when we want something or not want something, it's a lot like the moth and the flame. Moth only sees the flame and flies right in because the flame is warm and bright. But the moth doesn't see its own proclivity for bright and warm. Not that it's not there, not that it's not manifesting, it's just not looking at it. It's fascinated by the flame. When we want something or don't want something, we're so fascinated by that something that we don't notice our own compulsion. Mindfulness practice gives us the opportunity, particularly mindfulness of the body developed um, you know, uh, very intimately, we can learn to recognize a feeling even before the thought is fully formed. And we can learn to get off that train. And then we short-circuit tanha in that sense. You know, when, you, when I realized that I was going to be stuck in the Apple store, you know, or, you know, you recognize that the traffic jam the, the traffic jam problem is in you. It's not all these other drivers. As Ajahn Amaral once said, have you ever think about the fact that you are traffic? <laughs> um, so this is, this is one way of, of cutting into tanha. And if tanha is, is um, abandoned, then Dukkha doesn't arise. Abandoning tanha is kind of tricky, kind of hard, because usually we <clears throat> find ourselves in the midst of things. Right intention, by the way, which, which follows 
right understanding, right view, right narrative, right story. Traditionally is renunciation, the abandonment of the products of tanha, of our, of our, our genetic disposition. We don't actually, tanha never manifests directly. It's, it's, a, it's a tendency, it shows up as greed, hatred, and delusion. We can recognize greed and wanting, and aversion and irritation and anger. Delusion is a little harder. But delusion is, is uh, boy, is there anything that's not <laughs> delusion, really, when we come down to it? You know, the delusion that causes us suffering is the delusion that satisfaction is possible. You know, if you buy a lottery ticket and you don't win the lottery, it's not the end of the world, right? I mean. Nobody goes home and mopes, you know, for days because they didn't win the lottery. It's not that you didn't want to win the lottery. I mean, you bought the ticket. But, you know, realistically, don't expect to win the lottery. I mean, I do know somebody who won a bunch of money at the lottery, hundreds of thousands of dollars, so it can happen. But you just sort of don't expect it. And so you don't suffer. If you expect satisfaction in the prison, it's amazing. You know, the, the, one of the things that upsets the prisoners the most is when the guards don't do what they're supposed to do. You know, they're not supposed to be that way. Well, I say, well, they're guards. <laughs> how, do you, how do you expect them to, you know, you've been around guards for a while, you know what they're like. You've been around people for a while, we know what they're like. We've been alive for a while. We still navigate in terms of trying to make things more pleasant. And we still, you know, we strive for what we, what is difficult to get, which would be satisfaction. We work at it. We continue to work at it. We want it so badly that we imagine it. And then when it doesn't happen, Vibhavatanha, anger, irritation, not getting what you want. But if you don't, you don't have, and, and, you know, the prescription usually is let go. Let go, let go, let go. Well, you don't have to let go of what you don't hold on to in the first place. And if the amygdala is going to fire, if it perceives a threat, before you can even intervene, well then, the only way for the, for the cessation of that firing to happen is to not perceive threat. Now the Buddha is talking about seeing through a lot of the delusions that, um, particularly the delusion of satisfaction. If we don't expect that, not that we shouldn't want satisfaction, we can't help that. That happens before we, we even can intervene. It's not that we shouldn't want things to be permanent. It's just we shouldn't expect them to be. If we don't expect them to be, and we don't expect satisfaction, well then, when we don't get what we want, we say, what did I expect? (laughs) (laughs) But geez, you know, at the end, is there, what, to even th- we even think that we have some idea of what's going on. Do we have any idea what's going on? We just showed up, unless one of you guys was involved in planning to be alive. I just showed up, I, you know, and I showed up in a package that has its own uh, inertia. I don't have anything to do with this getting older or anything like that. And we, we emerge and make up an understanding of what's going on with minimal, minimal data. 
We know about all this electromagnetic stuff going on. We don't experience it. We don't factor it in in our decision-making except whether the Wi-Fi is working. And then, you know, so there's so much more that we don't even, we just don't even have a clue. And then we know that 96% of whatever there is, we don't even know what it is. Dark matter, dark energy, they don't have, and we don't even know the other 4%, what do we know? If I say, what is this? What is happening? You know, oh, my son was four. I mean, you know, the, the questions that show up, you're never quite ready for them. He's sitting in the back seat, no seatbelt, there weren't seatbelts in. Sitting in the back seat, he says, Dad, what's, what's all this for? <laughs> so I've been thinking about that for 40 years. <laughs> Anybody got an answer? We don't know. What are we doing here? But, you know, we have no... We just don't. I know, it's silly. And, and, and then we think of... We think we've got a grasp on historical trends, and this is an historical moment, and... Pretty delusion. And yet we can't live without it. We are totally dependent on our understanding of the world in order to just live in it, to navigate it, to get home. You know? We know how to get home. We can imagine what our kitchen's like. We have a sense of social process and even some sense of cosmic process. Although, I recall reading an article a couple weeks ago that maybe there was more than one Big Bang. Anybody see anything about that, or was that just me? It's just me? Okay. Because then it would have been, you know, how, how big a bang was our, was our Big Bang. I mean, we just don't know. We, we just have no clue. But we can't get along without it. And in terms of our evolutionary disposition, we, we believe our maps. We believe our thoughts. Nothing wrong with it. It's not like I'm saying, don't believe them. You know, we, you know if, if you see a tiger charging you if, you, if your response is, is that a tiger or is that just an illusion of a tiger? Am I projecting that? I mean, you'd be lunch before you you know, passed on your genetic material to. So, we are built to trust our model of the way things are. And of course, that model is, we think it's an accurate representation of the way things are. And being satisfied would be to have that model validated constantly, because then we know, secure, safe. But of course it isn't, because things turn out different than we expect. Right? Not just me. <laughs> Sometimes I think it's just me. All those bangs, those big bangs, that might have been me. But I seem to recall, somewhere on the web, so it must be true. So it's not that we should not believe our thoughts. We shouldn't expect them to be validated. It's just the expectation. If we don't expect things to be the way we think they should be, well then when they're not the way we think they should be, what's the big deal? We didn't, you know, what do we expect? Well, that's the way the, that's the, way the guards are. That's the way politicians are. That's the way life is. So, you know, the middle path is not to abandon our maps, can't get around without them. And it's not to cling to them and insist that our map is the right map, the only map, the true map. Sometimes the guys in prison say, 
do you believe in God? I say, ooh, what do you mean? This, which one, Allah or Jehovah? That usually just sidetracks the conversation right away because nobody's sure what we're talking about. But, you know, I was, uh, I was introduced to something called terror management theory by uh, Bhikkhu Nalio um, just recently in, a, in something that he, an interview he did. Terror management theory turns out to be a psychological theory that's rooted in evolutionary biology. The idea is that terror is a functional um, organ, or organism's res functional response of an organism to a life-threatening situation. Marshal all the resources of the organism in the service of survival. My dog is usually really good, stays right there walking along a train tracks yesterday and the train comes by and she just couldn't be consoled, shaking, I got down on the ground, petting her, she just wanted to get away, just couldn't tear her. If I'd let her go, she'd run out into traffic, I mean, she was not safe. But her instinct, get away. So that works fine, except for us, because we can represent our death to ourselves, and it scares the bejesus out of us. So we have a whole bunch of ways of sort of quarantining that, that reaction and dulling it. And certainly um, fantasies of all, all other lifetimes. But the other thing that is, I mean, you know, can this be testable? So they, they do these little, they have people do, <laughs> Uh, so they took some judges in, I think it was Louisiana, for some reason I think there, but, it was, but generally I think it was somewhere in the south. And they um, had them fill out some personality inventory and embedded in the personality inventory questions were, for half of the group, were, were questions about uh, how, how does thinking about your death make you feel? What might be an epitaph that you would write for yourself? So these people were reminded of their death, and then they were given a case like they might have while sitting on the bench. And this was a case with a, a prostitute. And they, they were supposed to set bail. So this was the little practice experiment. So the people who had taken the personality inventory, the average bail set was about $50. And for the people who'd been reminded of their death, the average bail was almost $500. And the, the explanation, or the, the theory is, that when reminded of our mortality, we cling to others more. We, we cling to social uh, standards more. We become more fundamentalist, more nationalistic. Those things have been tested a bit. Interesting. There was a Scientific American article that somebody sent to me recently about this, how it relates to our election. Because people who are scared, like a strong man, they go for the charismatic leader more frequently than people who are not. And they, this has been tested, you know, similar. So this biological disposition, this evolutionary inheritance that we bring to our lives, <coughs> we can't do anything about it. That's the way we are. But we, if we believe our thinking about it, we will suffer. The middle path is the path of no complaint. Doesn't mean that the pain goes away. Doesn't mean the pain, suffering, pain, sorrow, dis, you know, distress, distress, or that we're going to get what we want, or that we won't get old. Buddha got old. Buddha got sick. He died. He didn't get what he wanted. You know, he experienced pain. 
but did he suffer? The suffering is what is added on, and it's by suffering in this case is how we make it worse. I mean, the worst has already happened. Birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, and we make it worse. So if we can see our way clear to not making it worse, to seeing through the delusion of satisfaction, it can be easier to... Uh, so that w the wisdom is the wisdom of compassion. And the Buddha's compassion was to teach the insight into the nature of suffering so that we can, by not making it worse, automatically things get better. Because <laughs> often we make it worse. Let me just, uh, we have a few minutes we can, for some thoughts or... Think about a complaint-free life. <laughs> Any comments or thoughts or questions or please? You're mentioning that we tend to gravitate towards the pleasant, but on the other hand, we actually our minds tend to notice the negative, right? So it's sort of a well, you know, yeah. There's there's some I know Rick Hansen likes to talk about the negativity bias. But actually, and, and, and there is a way in which you can understand that, but, but the brain is oriented in positive sense, so it's got a huge positivity bias. I mean, if you look at Tanha, what have human beings done in the 100,000 years? Well, let's see. We, have, we live longer, Bawa Tanha. We've eliminated a lot of uh, scourges, and we live more comfortably. Kamatana, Balatana, that's what we've done. We've brought that forth. Into, and that's positivity bias. So I think, you know, the notice to, to say that the mind has a negativity bias, yes, but it also has a <laughs> profound positivity bias. Um, it's like it's looking for the negative to solve a problem. No, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it's, it's, it's remembering the negative because that could be a threat, that could be something to be avoided, but what it's looking for is the positive. It's looking for a way forward. Bawatana, how to be in the future, to be safe, secure, comfortable, to survive. That's positivity bias. That's what we're looking for. We're dodging the unpleasant stuff. So we can, we can become fixated on it, but I think that under it all, our motivation, even the motivations that are unskillful, are intended to... People are trying to make themselves happy. They're not afraid of being unhappy or running from... They're trying to be happy. It's a, I see it as a positivity thing. Yeah, please. All frustration between want, you know, if you want to do something, mm -hmm. and not participating... That's okay. And not participating what... Uh, results are. You know, it it yeah. seems like it's, it's it, that's the, uh, I'll give you an example, if I want to be in a, a show, a, mm -hmm. a art show or something, I have to anticipate I'm going to get in there, or I wouldn't even do it. Right. Yeah. And, and it's not that you shouldn't do that, it's just that you recognize that the expectation, <coughs> expectations are not always, or even sometimes, ever met. You know, the, the difference between... And, and, and what the Buddha is concerned about is your intention. You know, I'm, he wasn't as concerned with how things turned out. If you, if you, you do a surgery, that says this, the poor girl in the East Bay last year who had a tonsillectomy and wound up... I mean, the doctor didn't think he was killing her. His intention was to heal her but things happen. You know, you have to go forward thinking you're going to make, you're going to be successful with the surgery. Otherwise, I mean, you know, but, you know, and the Buddha said you can't escape your intention. You remember your intention. Karma, he said, is intention, not the what goes around comes around stuff. I mean, I, I, the goes around, comes around, strikes me as just a version of intelligent design. 
You know, we're attributing some kind of cosmic justice scales and, make, and just building it in like the nature of, you know, it's the nature of gravity instead of having it be a, a, a particular agent, a god or something. But you can't escape your intention. You remember your intention. If you acted in good faith and did the best you could, you may have be sad, but you won't be remorseful. Did everything you can. We can't do things. We can't solve some problems. I mean, the Eastern European immigrant situation, heartbreaking. That's all we can do is just let it break our hearts. I mean, unless we want to pick up and go there. Did you have, did you have something? Uh, <clears throat> um, let's see. Um, when you say we've been designed, mm -hmm. it doesn't feel... Oh, sure. Hi. <laughs> when you say we've been designed, uh huh. Um, it doesn't sound true. Um, I don't know if that's true or not true, but I don't mean designed in the way that is. A de I don't mean by a god or somebody who sat down and designed us. But we have we are built the way we are as the result of the conditions uh, through which we have evolved. And I don't mean just in our lifetime, but over over um, the history of evolving beings. And that's, okay. I'm, I'm just saying Evolving. designed as a, as a metaphor for the fact that we are the result of the conditions that have brought us here. Okay. <laughs> Design sounds mechanistic. Yeah. Creative, creative, not, well, creative and created. Yeah, I don't, feels, don't put too much, yeah. Well, okay, maybe don't I did put too, put too much. Don't put too much on the design. It was a, it's a metaphor to suggest that we didn't plan this ourselves. Right. Okay. Um, we find ourselves here. Okay. We do. We do. We do. And, and yeah. And, and there's no manual. Yeah. And who <laughs> are we anyway? Yeah. And we had, the and only people who we had to rely on was our parents, and they were adrift too. Right. <laughs> Would you say more, about the, more uh, directly about the development of compassion? Ah. I missed that wing. Yeah, well, the, the compassion, compassion actually is a behavior. There, there are two words in Pali that, that uh, refer to compassion. Karuna, which is the one we know, and that usually is sort of meta in action. It's expressed in right speech, right action, right livelihood. So compassionate action. But there's also the word anukampa, which means sort of, it's the word, the quivering of the heart, that occurs when, when suffering is perceived, in ourselves or in others. And how do we develop it? Oh, you know, there's um, there, what we know as mirror neurons. So when we see someone suffering, we, we have, in our neurology, similar firings. Mm -hmm. So that we, we, we experience in ourselves and, and then project it. See, that's how we read what somebody else is doing. So it's built into it's built into us, and we are social creatures. We are so dependent. And for most of human history, we've lived in groups of forty to seventy. You know, and being being ostracized was a death sentence. We we're totally dependent. So taking care of each other, the people who took care of each other were more likely to survive. Survival advantage there. So we're built that way. We're built to, you know, compassion is a possibility in us when, when, when suffering is perceived. So people who want to cultivate compassion, I say, look for the suffering. It's everywhere. Everywhere. If you, as soon as you see it, you know, the compassionate response is to offer you know, to help. And the help can be either attenuating the, Im the unpleasantness, the elements of that first truth, or trying to, to the extent that you can, show the way through delusion so that people are no longer making it worse for themselves and others. So if you can see clearly, seeing clearly, 
That's this insight. Uh, without un, un, unclouded by greed, hatred, and delusion. That's what the what. Hmm, that's the way the Buddha defined nibbana. To see without without being conditioned by to to live without being conditioned, to act without being conditioned by greed, hatred, and delusion. And that delusion part, it's hard to know if you if you wonder whether you're deluded. If you got a complaint, there's delusion going. I think complaints are a great measure. Such is complaint, such the origin of complaint, such the cessation and the path leading. What was your definition of delusion earlier? Oh, it was my friend's, yeah. He, he said being, uh, delusion is being firmly committed to the way things aren't. Okay. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Thank you guys for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.